Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. This morning we return to this Gospel of Matthew, which we've been working our way through pretty regularly. Week off last week. We come this morning to verses 22 to 29. This morning as we return to Matthew, we, we, we are at an interesting place. Jesus was becoming increasingly popular with the people. In fact, many were beginning to believe that perhaps this was God's promised Messiah. The descendant of David who would rule as God's great king. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were increasingly troubled by Jesus. They believed, in fact, that he was an evil man, not an honorable rabbi. For he did not follow their rules. He, he, he associated with people whom they considered unclean. He didn't keep their traditions Specifically, the Sabbath traditions. But Jesus did noteworthy miracles. What, what did that mean? Well, the people thought it was pretty clear. It meant that he is the son of David, the God's promised king. And the Pharisees concluded, no, actually, it means that he is exercising the supernatural power of Satan. An instrument of the devil as he cast out demons. And so in our text this morning, the identity of Jesus comes to a head. And in the process, we learn what we ought to think about Jesus. Let me read the text. Matthew 12, verses 22 down through 29. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they say, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, if every kingdom divided itself, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided itself will not, against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by who do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can rob? His house will end there. It's a rather complicated passage in some ways. It's got some uh, analogies here that we'll have to unpack when we get to them. But its truths are rather straightforward and, and, and two simple points. The first is this. Jesus is God's promised king. Jesus is God's promised king. You know, in this country, we're very proud of our form of government. Our leaders aren't royals that are born to power, whether they deserve it or not. And nor are they strong men who gain power by military coups. No, we have democratically elected leaders chosen by the vote of the people governed. What a great system, better than all systems of government, unless we don't get our way. And then suddenly we have problems with our system, as you can see as you read the news. 
But God's kingdom is not at the mercy of any of these frailties of human government. God chooses his king. That's always been the case, even in the provisional kingdom of the Old Testament. Remember, God instructed his prophets to anoint his chosen one. For example, God commanded Samuel to go and, and, and find the son of Jesse and find David and anoint him to be the king. God chooses his king. And that is especially true in regard, in regard to God's perfect messianic king, whom we now know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. We read about it back in verse 18 here in our text from last time, uh, where we read Isaiah prophesying, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. So we learned there, God chooses his king. And the one he chooses, as we saw last time we're in Matthew, is the perfect one. He is righteous. He loves justice. He does not come to lead some noisy revolution in the streets. He comes to extend grace to the wounded. And he comes to bring hope and peace to the nations. God chooses his perfect king, and that's Jesus. Oh, but how would we know the identity of the one that God has chosen? You know, throughout history, many, many people have risen up and claimed to be God's chosen leader. Well, God not only chooses, but God authenticates his king by signs and wonders. That's where we find Jesus as our text begin this morning in verse 22. People brought to Jesus a man who was blind and deaf and demon-possessed. That's a hopeless case, isn't it? But Jesus healed and delivered him so that he could uh, see, he could talk, and he was in his right mind. And God's authentication proved effective for immediately the people were astonished and concluded, could this be the promised son of David, the Messiah? Of course he was. Of course he was. In Isaiah 35, in fact, God had predicted this concerning his chosen one. There we read, then the, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf, un, deaf unstopped. And so in Matthew chapter 9, when two blind men called Jesus the son of David, the Messiah, he uh, healed their blindness to authenticate that uh, they were right in, his, in their sense of his identity. And when John the baptizer in Matthew 11 began to question, why am I sending in jail if the Messiah has come? And he sent people to ask Jesus, are you the one we're waiting for? Are we looking for someone else? Jesus sent his messengers back to John and say, saying, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, John don't doubt what God has clearly authenticated. Make no mistake, God demonstrated Jesus to be his king. And as if that were not enough, what we have here in our text, 
this king has not just appeared in history and been authenticated by some signs and wonders as he ministered in Galilee. If we just step back a little bit and look at the whole of what we know of Jesus, we find that, that, that this king came to earth and rose to power in an even more wonderful way than what we see limited to this text. But Jesus did not arrive on the earth with a royal entourage, barking orders at cowering subjects. No, this king was born one of us, born in a lowly, into a lowly status in this world. And he did not grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He grew up working in a carpenter shop with Joseph. And he was not carried into power on the shoulders of the downtrodden. No, he was one of the downtrodden with us, suffering and dying, rejected by those in power. But when his enemies thought they were done with him, when he was finally dead and buried, God raised him from the dead. And now Jesus, having ascended into heaven and been seated on God's right hand, has been given dominion over the whole earth. But as he reigns, he still knows us. He's walked in our shoes. While he's worshipped in heaven by legions of angels, he still bears the scars of his death on the cross for us. Don't you see, this is infinitely better than any person we might choose to lead us. This king knew eternal glory with his father, humbled himself to bear our sins that we might be saved. And now God has exalted him and given him authority over everything. Jesus is God's promised king, chosen and authenticated by the Father. Thomas Kelly wrote a wonderful hymn about the exaltation of Jesus, especially in light of uh, the crucifixion. And I'll just read you a couple of verses of the hymn. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight returned victorious, every knee to him will bow. Sinners in derision crowned him, mocking thus the Savior's claim. Now saints and angels crowd around him, own his title, praise his name. Crown him, crown him, spread abroad the victor's fame. Jesus is God's king, exalted at God's right hand. Which brings us to our second point. God's kingdom has begun. God's kingdom has begun. Among Christians, there's a lot of disagreement concerning the kingdom of God. It seems that among many evangelical Christians, the most popular view sees God's kingdom, kingdom as simply a matter of my own heart. By my choices, I either enthrone or dethrone Jesus as the king. And over what does he rule if I allow him to rule in my heart? Well, he rules over my heart. That's it. It's very personal. It's a very individual matter. Now, that's a pretty pitiful point of view, that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who came and gave himself for our salvation, is so easily enthroned or dethroned by my whims to reign over such a pitifully small kingdom as my feelings. <laughs> Certainly it's more than that. 
Then among other Christians, there's a larger view, which is very popular in our day, in the recent years, which goes like this. God's kingdom on earth is a future thing. And primarily it has to do with Jews. When Christ returns, he will inaugurate this earthly Jewish kingdom and will reign on the earth from the city of Jerusalem, a, a, a Jewish kingdom for a thousand years. I, I grew up believing that and continued to believe it for many years into adulthood. And one summer, years ago, while studying this passage in Matthew, I realized I was wrong. I was wrong. And so I adopted what I believe this passage clearly teaches. That God's kingdom is not a small, nor primarily a future thing. God's kingdom is already, though it is also not yet. It is a reality today, which Jesus, God's king, has established on the earth. Let me explain that as I think this passage teaches it. First, we need to understand something about the breadth of the kingdom we're talking about. The Bible sees God's rule over his creation as something he originally uh, entrusted to Adam. You remember God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over it on God's behalf for God's glory. But Adam committed treason. He sold the world into slavery to God's enemy, Satan. So that according to 1 John 5, verse 19, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's how Jesus understood the situation into which he came. The world under control of the evil one. So when he cast out de the demons out of the blind and deaf man, the Pharisees accused him of doing so by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. But Jesus understood that Satan's dominion is not just an idea here, an idea there. Satan's dominion, though evil, is a unified kingdom. So Jesus argued, no kingdom can attack itself and survive. Satan could not advance his demonic kingdom by killing his de demons, his servants. Therefore, Jesus says, if he casts out demons by the power of God's spirit, if through Jesus, God is defeating Satan in this miracle, that must be evidence of the appearance of God's kingdom. That's what Jesus said in verse 28. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Not it will come thousands of years from now. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Here's the king. Here's the king defeating the enemy. The kingdom of God has begun. But Jesus doesn't just leave it at that. He explains further. In verse 29, he makes clear that this miracle that he just had done was not an isolated incident. 
Instead, what they had just witnessed was the beginning of Jesus taking back God's creation, taking it away from the tyranny of Satan in order to rule it himself in righteousness. Now, Jesus made this point by use of a, a strange-sounding analogy. We read it in verse 29. Let me read it again. Jesus says, How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can rob his house? That's a strange-sounding thing. But actually, Jesus didn't make this up. He was quoting the prophet Isaiah. Back in Isaiah 49, we hear a similar analogy. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. So what's Jesus saying here? What's he saying in verse 20? This is a crucial thing. For this gives us a picture of what he's doing, what the kingdom looks like. Let's unpack it piece by piece so you can see what it means. First of all, it speaks of the strong man's house. The strong man's house. (laughs) That's a reference to Satan's kingdom, Satan's dominion. To all the people of the world who are enslaved, held captive, serving under Satan's tyrannical rule. Is there any question that there are millions of people that that's their plight? Then he speaks of the one entering the strong man's house. This is Jesus' reference to himself. He came into the world. In a world held captive to Satan. But he came into the world stronger than Satan and intends to disrupt Satan's rule to enter his dominion and give it grief. It goes on. It speaks of tying up the strong man. Here's a reference to Jesus' victory over Satan. Jesus has just demonstrated his power to not allow Satan to control the situation, but to deliver one of Satan's uh, uh, captives from being demon-possessed and blind and deaf. He just demonstrated that he had entered into Satan's territory and undone it. And that victory would be complete in Jesus' death and resurrection. Tying up the strong man. So that, for example, in Revelation 20, we read of Satan being bound and unable to deceive the nations any longer. And finally, it speaks of carrying off his possessions or robbing his house. These so-called possessions that Jesus speaks of are Satan's subjects. Those who are long held slavery, held in slavery to sin. But they're now going to be carried off, taken from, from Satan and set free by Jesus. You see, here Jesus is predicting what his kingdom is going to look like. From the time he said this until his kingdom flourishes in a new heaven and new earth, what's it going to look like? Well, it's going to look just like this. Satan has held the world captive for too long. 
And now God's king, Christ Jesus, has appeared, and he's the one who's going to defeat the evil one and rescue those held captive by sin. That began already back in Galilee, when Jesus cast out demons, but Satan's defeat would not be complete until Jesus died and rose from the dead. And then, snatching Satan's subjects would be, become the norm. As the gospel is proclaimed, people are set free from Satan's bondage to come and follow Christ. And folks, Satan is no longer powerful enough to stop it. Jesus is rescuing people out of Satan's very household and Satan cannot stop it. Which indicates that God's great kingdom has begun. If we didn't believe that was true, we would never send a missionary out to some place where Satan's power was overwhelming. But we send them because we know that Jesus is rescuing people from there. He's snatching people out of Satan's kingdom and he's building his own kingdom. He's bringing people into his own family. He's redeeming them and, and making them new. This is what's going on in our day. This is the gospel. Well, folks, we're so determined to, make, to define God's kingdom in terms of our political kingdoms with numbers and wealth and power. But God's kingdom doesn't work that way. God is not using military might or political power to subdue people. He is changing hearts by the word of the gospel. And he is giving new life by the power of his spirit. This may look like nothing to the world. It may look like nothing to you sometimes. But this great King Jesus intends to and will certainly re re uh, uh, restore and transform the whole creation. And that, folks, is a task worthy of your time and your life and your treasure. God's kingdom that has begun. The Pharisees just could not accept that Jesus was God's promised king, and therefore they also rejected the notion of his kingdom. At first they tried to adopt some middle ground, that he was a rabbi, a teacher of some sort, but not the Messiah, not the Son of God. And Jesus here is forcing them to take sides, forcing them to decide. You can't say I'm a, a, a minister of Satan while I'm destroying Satan's house. You can't do that. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom has come, and I'm the king, we might add. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work, Basic Christianity, famously makes the point that we have to decide just like the Pharisees had to decide. We want to just leave it all in limbo here. Who is Jesus? Well, maybe miss, maybe that. Listen to what Lewis says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. So Lewis concludes, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him out for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him my Lord and my God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to you. He did not intend to. Make no mistake, Jesus is God's king, his promised king, the Messiah, God the Son, come in the flesh. And in the coming of Jesus, God's great kingdom has already begun. And it advances to this day in places throughout the whole world as God snatches from Satan's household those who live their whole lives in tyranny and ignorance and sin. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's hard to get our minds around what you're doing when we're so used to just believing what we can see and measure and read about in the news. And here's something that nobody talks about very much and that we have to read your word to understand what you're saying. And we have to think about it hard. But, oh, Father, this is greater reality than everything we'll see in the news this week. This is a bigger news story. That Satan's tyranny over the world has been broken. That you've sent your king, the one we know as Jesus, our savior. And you've begun to undo the rule of sin and transform your universe. And reconcile it to yourself. Thank you, Father, that you've reconciled us to yourself. And that you've given us a, a, a ministry of reconciliation to proclaim this news far and wide. And we pray, Father, that you would only speed your work at every place in the world. And we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.